0: Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes.
1: Panda, I've discovered this week something that makes me laugh without fail, and it's so wonderful. When you discover this, it's like when you realise any clip of any toddler falling down will make you laugh. I've now discovered a corner, a a recently unexcavated corner of my sense of humour, which is people playing quite feeble instruments with sort of apologetic notes in a way that suggests both hope and shame. And I discovered that. (laughs) I discovered that by hearing a Melodica cover of the Jurassic Park theme tune that I am going to play now. It's so good, isn't it? And then it led me to discover someone doing a flute version of the 20th Century Fox theme tune.
0: (laughs) This is amazing because... God, this is fascinating about the internet, isn't it? The, the whole appeal of this is that it's not very good, isn't it? It's like intentionally not very good. I don't know if it is intentional. I think it's intentional.
1: My friend Octavia said, and I think it's very true, there's something about it that sums up the absurdity of human self-aggrandisement. And I think that's exactly it. Like, look at how pathetic we are. Bless us. I think it sums up the
0: beauty of hope and practice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Please do send us more. The other one that I love is children with violins. So if you've got any of these kind of feeble, shameful, hopeful recordings, please send them to me because they just tickle me no end.
0: I like old men in short sleeved shirts wearing velcro sandals despondently playing a triangle.
1: Yes, I like that as well. I like so. That I'd like that.
0: I'd like. I'd like those. Thank you so much for all your incredible, moving letters about. I may destroy you, and to the people who shared their own stories, devastating that there were so many of you. But thank you for sharing such precious information and such pain with us. We also had a lot of slightly mad emails about eels. I thought I'd opened a um, what is it? A wormhole? No. What have I a opened? Can of worms. That's it. I've opened a can of worms. Apparently, the poor things are endangered due to eeling, which is fishing for glass eels, and dams, which make their migration so much harder. Reeling from eeling. Yes, indeed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just hate that this seems to have become my role on the high load, just saying these sort of like, dad joke, non-joke comments, but, you know. Do you know what I thought of this morning? And and actually, you, oh, you did ask
0: me how how I was, but I had, I thought, as I was soaping myself in the shower, I thought, when Dolly asks me how I am, I'm going to say, too much al not
1: enough al-fresco. Yeah, see, we've just made the transition now into middle-aged dads. Two fun things I want to mention this week.
0: Firstly, have you seen Connell confessing in the hot priest's confession box? You heard me. Arlen's Comic Relief.
2: I get it. You do? Yeah. When it's good, it feels so good. Or kisses just taste so sweet. It's almost like being tested. You lie awake at night and you just lie there wondering if this is some cosmic challenge that you're being burdened with in order to... Audit your soul yeah. because you think to yourself, something this perfect, this right, how could it be a, 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 a sin? How could it? So, but that's and exactly and why you know, the test is so complex because it's the very idea of hope that you're being asked to deny. Yeah. Right? Because the most exquisite torture is that you've been tricked into believing in goodness itself, an illusion so and... perfectly cunning that it can only be invented by. The devil, not God, not by God. Right? You're right, yeah, right?
1: Oh, I love that. That's so well done.
0: I also loved, along with seemingly millions of people, Adele watching her Glastonbury set five pints in. In her own words, five pints in. Where did she do that? Was that on Instagram? Yeah, she posted. I actually didn't see it on Instagram. I saw it as a news story, which is the way that I see (laughs) stuff on Instagram now. I don't see it on Instagram. I read about it as a news story. Uh, She posted, um, because obviously uh, it's the time of year that Glastonbury would be, it was streamed, I think, on telly, her playing a set, her playing her set. And she took a picture or someone took a picture of her in her pyjamas singing along and then the caption is just five pints in. <laughs> and, and I think the general consensus, and I kind of love this phrase, is Adele watching her own Glastonbury set
1: is a mood. Oh, it's such a mood. <laughs> I love her. her. Her Instagram content is so sporadic and few and far between, but when she delivers, she delivers.
0: That's a good MO, isn't it? Sporadic But when I deliver, I deliver.
1: Yeah. Speaking of Glastonbury, I loved Zing Seng's piece for Vice about uh, what she's missing about festivals this year. And it's just such a kind of evocative, romantic homage to the British Music Festival. She begins with, I shouldn't be here. I should be face down in a field somewhere, listening to loud music and feeling the ground rumble beneath me. I should be staggering through mud, clinging onto my friend's arm and trying to run to the next stage before the band starts. I should be sheltering from the rain in a pathetic marquee or lining up to get into NYC down low as a drag queen in a leather apron taunts me in the queue. I should be baking to death in an unzipped tent or delicately hovering above a drop loo, holding a fanny pack and phone in one hand, bog roll in the other, with a plastic pint glass gripped between my teeth and my friends screaming my name and trying to find me outside the row of identikit toilets. She talks about why a music festival is such a British experience. She moved to the UK when she was 16 and uh, she went to a Reading Festival and she said the way she saw people behave at that festival was a sort of immersive education on British culture she says most British people value the following three activities above all else one having something to complain about two having a laugh and three getting wrecked and nothing combines all three more than imbibing a near fatal amount of booze and drugs over four days straight while listening to loud music and having limited access to clean bathroom facilities <laughs> And then she ends the piece with this, I just think, magnificent ode to what the joy of a festival is that is so much more than just kind of seeing live music. And she just writes in such a vivid way. I really did. If if you close your eyes when you hear this paragraph, you can almost feel the sweat on your back and the cider hangover developing in your head at noon. She says, when you pass the two story high gates at Glastonbury, your stomach, a twisted knot of excitement. You aren't just looking forward to watching some band or musician gallop about on a stage. What you're feeling is decades of British culture excreted by successive generations of attendees and performers whipped into a transcendent neurochemical frenzy of a cocktail of their favorite music and preferred inebriance deposited like a huge magical shit on a ley line somewhere in Somerset.
0: I'm such a big fan of Zing's writing. And I just think that is the most brilliant summary of British values. Having something to complain about, having a laugh and getting wrecked. I feel sort of (laughs) shamed and humbled and seen
3: all all at
0: once. I know, I know. (laughs) I'm so sorry for everyone who can't go to Glastonbury or any festival of their desire this year. And not just because... I think that people should be able to spend loads of money to go and do, you know, expensive privileged activities, but because it's also a um, massive event for lots of small business owners. When we think about festivals being cancelled, it's quite easy for people to be quite dismissive and be like, oh, you know, a load of like annoying Londoners can't go and get off their tits. Now, that much is true, but it's also um, the, you know, the reverberations are so much more than that. Um, and it's yeah. also a huge cultural event, isn't it? I've never been because I have acute festiphobia, but um, it is just, I know for some people, just the most magical institution. Speaking of festiphobia, ategra Wagba tweeted this week that she couldn't think about a festival without the smell of a portaloo filling her nose instantly. And I can smell that. I can smell that smell. And I can't think of a festival without thinking about waking up to the sound of... Hot urine pelting the side of my tent from a penis at great height. Ooh. The best is when it comes from multiple sources. (laughs) It's like being in Vegas.
1: For anyone who's uh, missing the Glastonbury experience, I also recommend listening to Emily Evis on Table Manners, which was last week's episode. And it is so interesting hearing about exactly what you just said, Pandora, what Glastonbury is as a business, um, how they choose all those food stalls, how they choose um, the various the various companies that sell there, um, what it's like when there's a fallow year like there is this year. She told an insane story about how one year they had a fallow year where it wasn't on and a man just didn't get the memo and tried his luck and turned up on, you know, the Thursday or whatever and he'd walked from France. (laughs) Isn't that mad? But sort of heroic. Maybe he didn't
0: get the memo because he started walking from France before they announced four years ago that there wouldn't have been a Glastonbury that year.
1: I know, I couldn't believe it. Because his phone
0: probably ran out of battery quite a while
1: before he got there. I've got doll's polls for you, Panda. It's been a while. Oh, it has indeed. This is a survey done by the dating app, The Inner Circle, about summer I dating. Heard uh, I have that one. I have. I was on it for a bit five years ago, I think. The plot doth thicken. It thickeneth. Oh, the plot remains very thin, I think, with my (laughs) dating app history. (laughs) But I remember it was for sort of fancy people, sort of fancy Euro people. There were a lot of of elegant French men in chinos with jumpers knotted around their shoulders. I'm sure that's not the strapline of the inner circle. I'm sure they invite many non-chino wearers. But anyway, they've um, done a survey... About uh, summer turnoffs in dating. So, can we I try think, and guess some? Yeah. So this is um, a list of ten. So number ten, I think, is a little unfair. Can you guess what it is? Okay, so I'm trying. So the most obvious ones are probably
0: kind of dodgy sandals on men. Um, that hasn't that hasn't
1: made it. They that hasn't made it actually. Oh. Number eight is flip flops. But oh, they're no, not too bad sandals.
0: i thought jesus sandals would be on there uh two short shorts
1: speedos that's number four um i don't know is fake tan in there no fake tan isn't number six is sunburn is that a turn off i mean it's a turn off for you as the sufferer of
0: sunburn, but i didn't know that it could also get you kicked out of the inner circle okay give me the
1: list no, to be clear, I don't think you get I don't think these are requirements for the dating app. It was just they were asking their users what <laughs> yes, would I be, understand. What would be a turn off. So the one I think is most unfair is number 10, which is hay fever. <laughs> that's really yeah, that's cruel. And also it's I feel
0: cruel. I as a hay fever sufferer, I feel quite defensive about it. I know.
1: Number 9 is men going topless.
0: Is a bit obnoxious when They walk down the street without their top on. I can see that.
1: Eight is flip-flops. Seven is men in vests. Right. Six is sunburn. Five is very specific. I can't imagine that people were coming up with this. 30% of people came up with this. They must have been offered it as an option. Sweaty makeup or sun cream in the beard.
0: (laughs) I think that's really cruel. Sweaty makeup. What are you actually meant to do about that? I know. Oh, OK. Well, I don't, I don't want to sweat in my makeup today. Ergo, I shall not. Sun cream in the beard.
1: How many times have you ever seen
0: that? <laughs> Stuff does get caught in the beard. <laughs> like the way it's just a <laughs> singular
1: beard. Four speedos. Three, date's getting too sweaty. Two, now this is a head scratcher for me. Heavy day drinking. If anything, that's a turn on, surely. <laughs> don't you think? That's the fun of doing a sort of park date. It's not turn off. Okay. Number one smelly feet.
0: I just think a lot of those can't be helped, really. I mean, they can be... They can't. No, that's not true. They can be helped. I just think they can be solved.
1: I know.
0: So you should buy a fresh pair of shoes for every date. Yeah. And you should not have... Not flip-flops. Botox in your armpits so you don't sweat. Wear Factor and 50. And you should get one of those like sprays that sets your makeup as if you're on stage. You know, you go like shh, shh, mm. shh, and it sets it. So, in all honesty, you're probably Big tired. supply of
1: pyriton.
0: Yeah, tired before. Pyriton? Tired before. Is that you think... how you say it? What <laughs> is do you it? De- I don't know. Is it pyriton? Pir- yeah, yeah. I might it, have no, made you're... that up. It no, is. No, I think it was just the ton. I enjoyed it. Anyway, thanks very much for that, Dolls Polls. It was magnificent. Speaking of discoveries, I recently discovered WeTransfer's content
1: platform, We present. Have you come across this? Yeah, I think I have. Very random. But I do remember well, I read something interesting that was posted there.
0: I agree. I was a bit confused at first. Um, I was familiar with WeTransfer, as many of us are, because that's how we send our podcast files back and forth. But I didn't think of it in content terms. I'm not totally sure when they did start a content platform. But it is brilliant. It is my new favourite website. The artwork is great. I'm so impressed. It's a joy to dig into. And some of my favourite writers are up there right now. Bernadine Evaristo's written a short story for We Present, Raven Smith's written a piece. And I want to talk about one piece I loved by the writer Ruby Tando, who started off as a food writer and then expanded into more philosophical lifestyle pieces too. I think you've mentioned, we've talked about Ruby's writer before, haven't we?
1: I love her writing. I love her writing and I love her last book which was called Eat Up which was about our attitudes to food and finding joy and celebration in food and ridding of rules and shame and self-judgment and judgment of others. Really 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 good book. Yeah she's a critic
0: of wellness and kind of anything that pivots around like diet diktats
1: isn't she? Yes, like morality around food. Yes, exactly.
0: The piece she's written for We Present is on the art of quitting. And it's such a charming piece that reminds us to roam free in our minds. Here's Ruby reading an excerpt of Work Sucks, I Know.
4: There is an art to quitting. Anyone can quit, just unplug, pick up and walk away. But it takes a level of mastery to quit well. My definition of quitting is, as it happens, more or less exactly the same as most people's definition of quitting badly. It is upping and leaving before you've had a chance to lay down roots. It is extravagantly burning your bridges and changing your entire life course with less deliberation than most people give to changing their broadband contract. It is explosive, reckless quitting, just as you approach the apex of the curve, This quitting is the feeling in your stomach when your car flies over the crest of a bridge, a jolt that separates you from yourself. In that moment, you feel weightless. I'm an evangelist for this kind of quitting. Ever a bad influence, I advise people to quit far more enthusiastically than I ever impel them to stay. It's something like the dump him refrain of faceless internet friends, an easy remedy for a systemic wrong, making islands of people to save them from hurt. Why sit steady, I will ask, when you could spin a new story for yourself? A career change sparkles on the horizon. A dazzling romance beckons. The only thing more thrilling than quitting something is starting something new. In the vacuum that quitting creates, countless new maybes rush in. In my defence, and perhaps to my detriment, I practice what I preach. When I was 18, just days before I was due to start a physics degree at a university I'd always dreamed of attending... I quit. That was back when I wanted to be a meteorologist, fresh off the back of one too many viewings of the day after tomorrow. I went back to sixth form and took an R A A level and applied to art schools instead. Before I had a chance to fail, I quit. Next was the last minute switch to a philosophy degree in London. Within weeks of starting, I'd switched degree programme. Within the year, I had quit. There were two faltering years of another degree at another university and then I quit. Most recently, there was a creative writing course, which, naturally, I quit. I considered quitting this article about quitting, twice. At every point, the reasons to quit felt compelling. First, there was a breakdown that sent me, briefly, to a psychiatric inpatient ward. There were breakups and bad teachers, an eating disorder and the insidious voice of my poor self-esteem perceived slight would set in motion a downward spiral from which I could only recover with a decisive full stop, a quit. At the slightest discomfort an itch would begin to settle in my chest, small at first but soon as insistent as a scream. Quitting felt like breaking through the surface of the water, like breathing again. There has been no area of my life safe from these fickle squalls. I've quit relationships, homes, personalities, religions, friends, holidays, plans, studies and styles, landing every time in the lap of chaos, back at square one.
1: It's a very invigorating thing to listen to, and it's not a stance that you hear explained or described very often. No, I mean, quitting gets a really bad
0: rap. We're told Mm. to avoid it at all costs and to only take that option when all else fails. I think quitting is equated with failure, really, isn't it? Or at least that's mm. how perhaps I've been raised to see it. I love Ruby's embrace of quittery. It's it's radical, it's exhausting, and it's not without pain, making an island of yourself, but it's the way she finds momentum. It's the way her life
1: surges forward. It's It's the way she finds herself. Yeah. And I just think there's just such an obsession now with with goodness and with making the right choices. And it's just not a realistic model for how you get through like a 90 year life or however long, you know, on average we're going to live for. I think people do it in all sorts of different ways. And as you said, I think quitting has been historically seen as a weakness that there's this kind of particularly british ideal of stiff upper lip and withstanding difficulties and just getting yourself through uncomfortable situations without really questioning whether you should remain in them or not and uh i think there's something very appealing about being a quitter well there is as you say that
0: massive pressure to get things right road to hall book about it out soon <laughs> I thought it was really interesting the way that she um, framed it within the context of technology, too. She writes, A machine never quits. If you can be defiant, you can feel alive. And I love that as a kind of like statement of human resistance. Like perhaps being able to quit is the only thing that separates humans. From the machines. So we talk a lot about automated workers and how much of the workforce in the future will be made up of computers. And I get really scared when we have those conversations, if I'm honest. And anyway, I loved that key difference from her reminding us that
1: there are some things that only humans can do. <laughs> do you know what? This reminds me of a conversation I had with a very, very clever friend recently, where I said to her, I wish... I I I was. I can't remember what I was talking about. Just life, I think, generally. I said I wish I could do it on autopilot. I can't wait for a period of my life when I'm, you know, settled and happy and enlightened enough that I can do life on autopilot. And she was like... You
0: don't long for that.
1: I think what I mean is I wish I didn't have to, like, make choices every day all the time to yeah, make sure that I'm that healthy understand. and happy. And she said... The thing is with autopilot is we've misunderstood what that means in the world of technology. And autopilot, even though that sounds like it's there's no cognitive process, within a machine when something's on autopilot, every nanosecond, there are 3,000 tiny readjustments that are happening. <laughs> and I think that's just such a great metaphor for this false idea that we can ever get to a point where we can just, we're at our final fixed place and uh we don't really have to think and we don't really have to make mistakes or make choices uh or weigh things up and we can just plow ahead happily but in the human experience I just don't think that really ever happens
0: it doesn't and I think it's worrying that we crave that and that's definitely because of I think getting ever closer to technology and how much it's come into our lives and that really reminds me of something that the psychotherapist Julia Samuel said, I was interviewing her recently for something I'm working on, and I asked her, because she's got a new book out about change and choice and how hard we find it, and I said, well, what would you say to the woman that says, I just want to know myself, Julia, I want to know myself today and know that I'll know myself tomorrow? She was like, I'd say, sorry, but it's not going to happen. She was like, Mm. you are changing every single day, and you are made up of millions of different parts, And you're always Mm. going to have 100 choices to make. And the more you resist that, basically, the more it turns inward and hurts you.
1: Yeah, I think that's very, very
0: good advice. Ruby also acknowledges a really important point to mention, that there is a privilege in quitting. Many people cannot quit their job just because they don't like it. They don't have the option to cut ties with their family or to move house on a whim. It's not a route available to everyone. And she totally realises that. And in that instance, she said it's just more something that we need to make space for psychologically. She Mm. writes... The freedom to quit is a resource spread unevenly across lines of class, gender and race, with the most vulnerable left with little choice but to stay in bad jobs with bad bosses. When you've got nothing, quitting isn't an option. But lots of the best work we do as humans is the stuff that happens in the vast, improbable landscapes of our imaginations. Could not agree with that more. If you can imagine quitting, if you can feel the weight of the pen in your hand as you sign your phantom resignation note, if you can picture slamming the door, you can hold on to some fragment of the defiant, autonomous asshole you really are. Opposition becomes autonomy, if only
1: in your dreams. Really phenomenal writer, Ruby Tando, I think
0: $45 up front
5: for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Support for the high-low comes from Babylon Store and's new Morvedre Rosé. With summer around the corner and green spaces
0: opening up, it is definitely seasonally appropriate to crack open the Rosé.
1: Be the first to taste the new 2020 vintage of Babylon Storen's Morvedre Rosé with hints of raspberry and rose petals, an elegant dry wine from their beautiful gardens in the Cape winelands of South Africa.
0: If you buy three or more bottles of 2020 Babylon Storan Morvedre Rosé, you get a 500ml tin of their extra virgin olive oil
1: as a gift. Go to thenewt.co.uk forward slash thehilo. Thank you to Babylon Storen's Morvedre Rosé.
0: about you? What has been blowing your
1: mind this week? I was, and I know I have a history of overusing this word, but I really do mean it this time, obsessed by a piece called What Gen Zers Really Think of Millennials by Diora Shardi Genova. I am fascinated by the delineations between Generation x y and z and this was just such a funny inventive anecdotal non-theoretical non-academic non-dry way of exploring it i think it's genius so she interviewed a series of gen Zers about what they think of millennials here are my favorite bits they're old people trying to use social media they try to fit in with the younger generation but they're not really the younger generation anymore They try to use all the hashtags and GIFs, but they're not very good at it. (laughs) I think they get really caught up in really simple everyday stuff. They make a barbecue and pretend it's the best thing in their whole life. (laughs) This is hilarious. It's so good. They grow a basic thing, like a fruit or vegetable, and they're like, wow, I didn't kill it. They'll spend the whole day fantasizing about that fruit or vegetable. My sister grew beetroot and she's really happy about it. I don't really understand it tell me about your courgettes again (laughs) (laughs) they don't have big ideas because they're already past their expiry date small simple things mean everything i actually have a theory on that which i'll revisit in a second someone else said i think they're self-obsessed millennials are the ones who invented selfies and those travel instagram pages and stuff that revolves around their lives another jen sedger commented i think this might be my favorite one Millennials are just humorless. Their Facebook status updates are normally them oversharing about personal experiences that no one cares about or can relate to. They laugh at the more simpler things like, is it wine o'clock yet? Or share despicable me memes. On social media, they use the laughing emoji face, but not sarcastically. They'll say things like, happy hump day. No one really understands what that means. They use hashtags like hashtag yoga, hashtag toast with avocado, hashtag pasta with sauce. Or if their son is called Jason, they'll write hashtag Jason. They don't understand that hashtags are meant to be a bit more targeted. That's not actually how it works. I think they're having an identity crisis because there's only so many BuzzFeed quizzes you can take until you really have to know yourself. (laughs) They try to gatekeep 90s culture. I've never seen an episode of Friends and I don't have any intention to do so. I don't think they even find it that funny. But because they grew up with it, they want to make sure everyone else knows it's the funniest thing. And finally, one of them said, millennials moan a lot and they don't do anything. You find 16, 17-year-olds on TikTok selling their creativity, whereas I feel millennials are obsessed with the traditional 9-to-5 job because that's the only way to get job security. They're obsessed with job security. They're always annoyed at the fact they knew they were going to be renting forever, whereas Gen Zers know we're just not going to be able to buy a house. A lot of that
0: is very, very funny. I hard disagree with two points there. I think Facebook's much more of a Gen X thing. I I don't know anyone that still uses Facebook of our age. And I don't agree that they're obsessed with the nine till five. I think the multi-hyphenate career
1: is very millennial. I actually mm. think we did it first. Do you know what I think is interesting? I was thinking about that, about how we're obsessed with simple things. About, yeah, I like, agree domestic. with that. Agree, agree. Simple, so small I, things, yeah. So I think that's because, I was thinking why that is. And I think it's because millennials, I don't think, had a very good time in their 20s. I think that our youth... That first decade into young adulthood was a time that was for our generation filled with anxiety, disappointment, um self reflection, particularly in the you know the economic crisis that many of us graduated in. So I think that we're excited about the next phase of life and coziness and homeliness and domesticity, and you know growing things on our windowsills because I think we're going to find aging. Uh, a bit of a relief whereas gen x who are the generation above us i think they had too much fun in their youth when you think about they did their 20s in the 90s and early noughties and i think that's why gen x's a lot of them i know are having meltdowns about being middle-aged because i think that they had they want to recreate the youth that they had so anyway that's my theory about why we're all growing tomato plants We'd never generalise.
0: We'd never try and sum up a whole generation in one (laughs) sentence. I also think as well, and this isn't endemic to millennials, it's just obviously the age that we are means there's a large span of us who were young at this time. The last 10 years, and this is obviously in tandem with social media, we've been the experiential generation. And I I think that a lot of people are exhausted. I think that what has come out of the pandemic for so many people is realising that they were living a life that moved too fast and tried to encompass too many things. Uh, I think that's why a lot of millennials are obsessed with small homey things because they thought big and they thought wide and they thought adventure and exploration every day. Whereas I think Gen Z are a lot more careful about that. They're a lot more at home because they're making TikTok videos in their sitting room. Speaking of young people, I wanted to recommend a YA book this week called The Great Godden by Meg Rosoff. I read it at the same time as my niece, who is 14, and she absolutely loved it. And I don't read a lot of young adult fiction, but I do enjoy occasionally dipping my toe in and the offering is so good. It made me long to be 12 or 13 again. And I think it's such a talent to write as an author for a young adult audience because... It has to sort of be everything, it has to be saucy enough to keep them on their toes, and it can't be patronising like a 15-rated film, which makes it obvious that there would be more if it was an 18, but not with so much sophistry that you lose a young teenager.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really, really difficult art form, I think, to do good YA.
0: Yeah, I think so too, and that's why I enjoy occasionally reading... a a great book that's not meant for my age just to um, just to appreciate what it's doing. And I wanted to recommend The Great Garden because I actually think that it's very enjoyable for adults as well, um, which, again, I think the best young adult fiction is. Uh, it's a brilliant short book for someone looking for a thoughtful um kind of impactful summer read, you know, something that's not hugely long, it's easy to follow but it's not, it doesn't feel watered down or dumbed down. I keep hearing and I suspect we'll continue to hear that people are really struggling to focus or concentrate on anything long form at the moment so this maybe maybe YA fiction is the answer. The Great Garden is about four children who head to their beach house uh, with their parents for the summer, who head to their grandparents' sort of crumbling beach house for the summer. And they're joined by two teenage boys, the sons of a friend of a friend. It sounds like it's going to be the quintessential teenage holiday romance, but it's so much more than that. It's more a story of manipulation and the danger of judging a book by its cover. And it deals so well through these four different adolescents, the kind of headiness of um puberty and of becoming aware of lots of different feelings and and the world as well and it's done in this entirely non-preachy non this is a life lesson that we are going to club you over the head with type of way the great garden is a great book for teenagers to read as they become aware of their sexuality and the power that they have or feel like they don't have Um, i loved i loved the um kind of Subtle reminders of agency and autonomy and conviction. Um, I'm really glad my niece read it. And I think for anyone with teenage girls in their lives, it's a lovely way to have a tricky conversation with them without them rolling their eyes at you. Um, It's also a rattlingly good yarn. The Guardian compared it to Bonjour Tristesse. I think it's a bit less languorous than Bonjour Tristesse and a lot
1: less French. But if you liked it, you'll probably like this too very much beside the point particularly when you said the story's about not judging a book by its cover but what a beautiful <laughs> book jacket it's what a really gorgeous cool image. Book <laughs> and you can imagine as well as a teenager you know that's a really cool book to be reading rather than you know sort of twee illustration
0: teenage dolly would be reading that on the book with her hoodie up wouldn't she glowering at everyone when they when they suggested yeah. she might want to take a swim
1: Go outside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Get some fresh air. <laughs> I have a podcast recommendation from the Desert Island Discs archives this week, which is Chili Bouchier, who uh, was an English silent movie actress, often described as the Clara Bow of England. And it's one of my favourite Desert Island Discs. The professional story of her life and her account and descriptions of the film industry in the 1930s is Fascinating, But the reason I return to this episode again and again is for the stories of her very complicated romantic life and personal life. Her collection of anecdotes are just so extraordinary. One of the stories she tells is that when her first husband, who was a matinee idol, was having a very indiscreet affair with a woman who was another musical star, Chilly Boucher said that kind of everyone in London knew about this affair other than her the woman he was having an affair with ended it and he was so devastated and angry that Chile's husband took an airplane and flew above her house in London. I think she was married to her marital home and dropped matchstick boxes into her garden from obviously a very great height, um, which seems like a pretty convoluted way of making your point known as a scorned lover. Uh, But the story that I find so moving Uh, in the episode, is the story of the great love of her life who she never got to marry and she lost prematurely. It's so devastating uh, as an experience that she recollects because it's a reminder that it doesn't matter how old you are. She died in 99, I think, and this was done in the early 90s. So she would have been in her 80s when she was interviewed by Sue Lawley for this episode. And you can tell in the way that she tells this story that even though she was twenty-seven when she lost him, one always carries the sharpness of memories of heartbreak and grief. And and they will always remain sharp to you, you know, right up until your last years. And making it sound very maudlin, it's not it's also very reassuring the whole episode in its own way. Because what you get from Chili Boucher's Desert Island Discs is she looks back on her life and she reflects is that she really has had a full life, that she is grateful to have led it with all its complications. And she got to the end of it with a hugely optimistic outlook. And I think that is a wonderful lesson to the rest of us to remember that it is possible to go to the darkest depths of emotional turmoil and loss and the most complicated and naughtiest corners of human experience That will, of course, inform who we are, but to know that it is possible to survive it. We have proof in these stories. Humans were designed to survive it. You got engaged, you bought a house.
3: Yes. Everything was going splendidly. Everything was going splendidly, yes. And then what? He died. He died in 1941 at the age of 36. How? Why? He came home with what we thought was a bad dose of flu. In three days he was dead. It was... Cerebrospinal fever, which is a very, very virulent form of meningitis. He was a terribly, terribly strong person, but he just went to a skeleton in three days and died. I wasn't married to him, but I was on the phone to the nurse at the hospital that night. I said, I can't sleep, sister. She said, well, come and if you'd like to come and sit here and wait. I said, yes, please. And she said, uh, no, just a minute, dear. No, don't come. She said, don't come, Mrs. Joyce. Mr. Joyce had just passed away. I still cry. But I say, nobody had called me Mrs. Joyce until that moment of his death. So I say she married us. as i died. And you never really got over it? Oh, no, I couldn't get over a thing like that, ever he was such a vital person that it was impossible to believe that he'd gone and he hasn't gone Only he's with me
0: i did a deep dive into oprah's podcast last week oprah's super soul conversations it's called now i know oprah is not exactly an up-and-coming name i don't think i can claim to have discovered this podcast but we were recommended her podcast by a listener and I dipped in and out of quite a few and I especially like the way she makes podcasts about conversations she had like decades ago and I was astounded to come across one which was from 1997 so 23 years ago so I'd have been 10 and yes I know that you would have been younger than 10. Anyway so she did a 1997 interview with Ellen DeGeneres Um, And it was just after Ellen had come out. And Oprah's released it as a podcast called Ellen DeGeneres Comes Out. So it does what it says on the tin. But if we ever wonder if or what progress has been made in the dialogue around sexuality or that needed to be made in 20 years. I think this podcast is it.
5: And then I would just say my private life is my private life. I don't want to talk about it, mm-hmm. which I always believed. Mm-hmm. And then when I decided that it was time for me to to say I'm fine with who I am, I feel good about me. I'm mm-hmm. not ashamed of who I am. I thought, really, who cares still about me? What got you to be this fine with saying I, it? I don't know. I mean, i I've I've become more comfortable with myself just in general as mm-hmm. a person in, in my body, how I look, just everything. Why did you think it was necessary for you to come out? You know, you've read some of the mail. People say, so if you're going to, why not just let that be your business? Why was it necessary for you to come out, tell the public? Why was it necessary for the character to do so? Because it's okay. Because it is okay.
0: <laughs> it's sin. It's no different than uh, adultery. It's no different than... Uh, You know, robbing, stealing, lying, cheating. And I don't think you're a freak. I don't think, I think you're a very nice person. But I think you're living in
4: a lifestyle that is wrong.
5: What do you want to say? Yes? I I feel like if the families out there had the PR person as the gay and lesbian community does, it'd be great for families, too. (laughs) I just feel like we're being stuffed with this right now, down our throat. It's just like... Why? Why? Well, because time? because it, it, you don't have to fight for anyone to embrace you and say how wonderful you have a family and children and that's just accepted. That's of course people are going to embrace that. And I agree. There's been way too much focus on it. There's been and the the show it it, it was suppo- it wasn't supposed to leak out. It was supposed to be just these subtle little clues how till did it you happened. Get on time. That's why, I, I think that's what me. I had the carton of milk and I have my ten year old boy there. And yep, I'm gay. What's that, mom? You know, and I feel like... He should should know. He should know what it it is.
0: That she even had to take questions from the audience like that. That she even needed to do that when coming out. um, Mm. Like she had to defend herself.
1: God. And that was, what, 20 years ago?
0: I think this conversation is um, so much more than Ellen.
1: Yeah, it's exemplary of very long-standing attitude towards gay people. And that's a period of history. And sadly, in many cases, it's a period of history that is not over. That attitude, we're still feeling the residualness of it. It's not, it's not gone.
0: But if you look at the response to Philip Schofield coming out recently compared with the, the response was to Ellen coming out, and I know it's different because uh, the US has a lot of very, very conservative states... And also, Ellen is a woman, Philip is a man. But I think there's a ver- there's a huge chasm in how that news was received. If you look at the support mm. he got. And she... That was, like, one of the biggest celebrity scandals. I literally use that word. Scandals of the 90s. Mm. If you're a fan of, like, celebrity criticism or celebrity social commentary, which, yes guilty as charged, then it always mentions... um, It mentions that, and it mentions another thing that always comes up, which I also find fascinating, is Demi Moore's naked pregnant cover for Vanity Fair that Tina Brown did in 1988. That's another one that comes up as, like, a massive moment in pop culture
1: history. Oh, I'd be interested to go back and listen to that. And I've got friends... I've never listened to Oprah's podcast either, but I've got friends who are evangelical about it. It's their favourite podcast, so I must... I must go back and listen to some of those interviews
0: and they're really short which is um really great I know there's always an irony in me recommending really short podcasts because this podcast is anything but but um they're literally just conversations and then she does a bit of annotation over them and I don't love all of them they don't all resonate with me but they're but I don't think anything should have to. And there are some, I just love the ones from history. You know, Oprah's been working for mm. such a long time. She's worked through so many different kind of epochs of social culture, pop culture, you know, media
1: culture. So it's kind of fascinating mm. to go back to. I watched a really informative video clip this week with Robin D'Angelo, who is the author of White Fragility, about how white people need to readjust their definition and perception of what racism is.
0: White fragility is brilliant. I find her perspective as a diversity trainer, she's been doing it for like 20 years, really interesting, especially when she talks about how people have responded to her over the years and how that Mm. is shifting, albeit very slowly.
1: Mm. She argues in this video that until we accept complicity in racism regardless of our personal politics and ethics or upbringing until we accept complicity irrespective of that we will not be able to have the necessary conversations about race that need to happen now and we won't be able to receive and hear and engage with what black people have to say to us in any meaningful or effective way
0: i was really disappointed this week in um Keir Starmer's comments where he separated what was happening in the US with what was happening here, which, as we know, is just like a diversion and a distraction to sort of suggest that these things are only happening in particular countries, particular nations. And then he further separated the protests from Black Lives Matter, um, which again, I just found really disappointing. This kind of separating off and cordoning of issues just feels really counterproductive right now.
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's obviously a massive mistake to separate out those things and, and isn't at all helpful. Robin DiAngelo uses such clear language to describe the commonplace conversational and behavioural issues that she's talking about amongst white people, making it really uncomfortably recognisable but so helpful in understanding how we can change and how we can be supportive and useful and receptive she talks about the inevitable absorption of biases and a racist worldview that we have to accept that we have been the word she uses are swimming in racist waters our whole lives just by being white members of a western society
0: There was a really interesting show on Channel 4 last week that that looked at exactly those biases and head starts in a very clear way. It's called, for anyone that wants to watch it, School That Tried to End Racism. And it's filmed in Glenthorne High School in South London. And you can watch it on 4OD. And it's basically a three-week workshop with tons and tons of acted-out metaphors to help to help the children understand, but I imagine they're adults watching the show as well. So on one day, to illustrate these biases that you just mentioned, they have 24, 11- and 12-year-olds standing on the starting line of an athletics field, and they're told they're about to start a running race. So the teacher starts to ask some questions. If English is your parents' first language, take a step forward. If you've ever been the only person in the room of your race, take a step backwards. And by the end, of course, there are huge gaps between the children and the race has not even yet begun. How can mm. the children at the back ever catch up? It's, it's, it's clunky when I explain it, but it's very powerful no, to watch. Not at all.
1: Not at all. That sounds like you can imagine as a child something as demonstrative as that in such a familiar setting would really help. You get around your head the, that concept of privilege. Totally.
0: And there's one child at the back, Farah, who says, This is just not fair now. And her school friend
1: replies, Farah, none of us are white. Robin D'Angelo goes on to talk about how we are invested in a system of racism. And we also willfully don't want to see that investment because it is a system that has made white lives and white existence more comfortable and more powerful and she then talks about this concept of fragility which is obviously the basis of of her book white fragility and how white people's hurt feelings in conversations about race can become weaponized in that they shut down discourse these weaponized feelings center the topic around ourselves and basically make our upset or shame more important than the oppression prejudice assumptions aggression and violence that is so common in the black experience which when you break it down is just another perpetuation of white supremacy and white lives being more important than black lives that somehow our emotional lives and our feelings are more precious and need more constant protection it's a short video but it's a really informative one and a great introduction to robin and her work and i just think everyone should watch it. Whether we think we have a grasp of these ideas or not, it's such a succinct and powerful explanation and we all need to be reminded of it.
5: In that way, I think white fragility functions as a kind of white racial bullying, to be frank. We make it so miserable for people of color to talk to us about our inevitable and often unaware racist patterns that we cannot help develop uh, from being socialized into a culture in which racism is the bedrock and the foundation, we make it so miserable for them to talk to us about it that most of the time they don't. Right? I and mean, we just have to understand that most people of color that are working or living in primarily white environments take home way more daily slights and hurts and insults than they bother talking to us about because their experiences, they're going to risk more punishment. They're going to lose the relationship. They're going to have their experience minimized, explained away. They're going to cause the person to feel attacked or hurt. And in that way, white fragility functions as a kind of everyday white racial control. None of that has to be intentional or conscious, but that is
0: how it functions. Now time for Ask
1: the Hilo. At the moment, I'm having lots of anxiety about the lockdown restrictions being eased and life going back to normal. With lockdown, I think the reason I'm happy is because I'm never worried about the next party. But I also don't have that voice in my head telling me, you're 21, you need to go to as many parties as possible. And it's just so peaceful because there is no longer this battle going on inside my head. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on this or any tips for how I can continue this peace after the lockdown is eased.
0: That is something I have read or heard a lot at the moment. I don't think it's necessarily got to be a depressing realisation. I think it can be a really galvanising useful one for people who feel like that to look at the lives they were living before and think about how they might want to live their lives again. For some people, it is the best feeling in the world going out every single night and for other people... Um, that does not make them feel good and and that is honestly the truth of it and one of the most freeing things about getting older for me I'm not saying that that happens with everyone but for me was realising that I'm not someone that feels great going out all the time and I think that there are lots of people like that so just because you're 21 not all 21 year olds are made the same you're not all built out of the same material You don't work the same way psychologically. So I think use the great pause, as the actor Finn Wolfhard called it this week, to consider what you
1: might want to do, the other side, when you're able to live your life again to the full. Also, I think just be upfront with people that you love, that you're feeling a bit weird. I think everyone's going to take some serious readjustment time, I think we had in our group of uni girlfriends, we decided to meet up for the first time when we were allowed in a park when lockdown restrictions eased. And we said on our WhatsApp group to each other, look, no one has to come if they're not feeling comfortable yet about doing this that's totally chill and anyone who does want to come if you just want to pop in that's fine if you you know think you want to come but you're worried you're going to be a bit socially anxious because you haven't been around anyone other than your partner for three months then you can come and just be quiet and that's totally fine as well and I think most groups of friends and most social groups understand that you know there were a couple of us who said I am feeling a bit nervous about it you know, I might be a bit quieter or I might just come for a bit or there are others who said I am I might be coming into contact with someone vulnerable so I don't feel ready yet to be in a park in an open space with lots of people and we were just like, look, you do you, whatever whatever makes you feel happy and safe and comfortable, do it and people who love you will completely understand that I agree with
0: that I do think that's easier for us to do 10 years older I think it's harder to dissent or to say something that's not considered, you know, the majority view when you're in your early 20s. Certainly, like, uh, when I talk to lots of my friends, we admit that we uh, did things or said things or lived our lives in our early 20s because we didn't really know how to state otherwise or to follow through with inklings that that might not have been the best thing for us. So I, I wonder if it's much harder to do maybe when people are living... I don't know, I feel like now my friends all naturally lead quite varied lives. There's not like one way to live a life among amongst my friends. Perhaps this girl feels like her friends all live a very similar way, and so then it does become scarier, I think, doesn't it, to to be the outlier?
1: Yeah, it is scary, and I do really remember that pressure to not let people down and to be on your best form and to not miss out um and it's you know still a pressure that i feel now but I, I agree with you it's much more acute when you're 21 but i still would encourage you to just with your closest friends and the people that you trust to be vulnerable and to be honest about what you think you're going to be capable of when lockdown eases what you want to do uh how you want to see them and what they can expect from you you know as ever the key to good intimate close connections with people you trust is by just communicating and being honest and just remember
0: everyone feels really fucking weird right now
1: thank you for listening to the Hilo you can, I never want to say the words get in touch because I've heard Jane Garvey speak recently about how it's the most cliched and hackneyed and horrible phrase on radio get in touch by emailing us show at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch at shop.com where all proceeds go to charity, 50% to Women's Aid and 50% to Show Racism the Red Card. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.